So have there been many people here that have been thinking about the things above since last week? I know that Ruth has. She's been reading a book that is titled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a book of about 400 pages, a little over, that describes heaven. And uh, as we've spoken recently about personal experiences and all the talk out there about people having these visions and other things that they're asking you to rely upon their view of heaven, Randy Alcorn wrote this book. And what he did, his rationale was he was going to go to Scripture. And he was going to look everywhere he could to find allusions to Scripture. Not only look at allusions, he'd look at things that Scripture clearly says. What I like, especially about his book, is that when he draws out a principle that he thinks is potentially there in Scripture, he tells you. He doesn't just say this is the way it's going to be. He says, I think this may be the way it's going to be, and if it's not, maybe I'm reading this wrong. But there's a whole lot of Scripture that talks specifically about heaven. And he stands on that because it is from the Bible. And this book is over 400 pages. The Bible has a whole lot to say about heaven and where we're going to be headed. So during this past week, of course, we've all been thinking about heavenly things. That was the last exhortation that we had from Scripture uh, last Sunday. We've been living our lives captivated with Jesus, who, verse 1, assures us is seated at the right hand of God. And since Scripture holds true, we find that the more that we seek the things above, the more that we evangelize, the more that we read our Scriptures, the more we pray. The more we serve, the way we help one another, the more we worship. The more that we love God and the less time that we have to follow the earthly things. The more time that we make for God and the more we set our affections on Christ, the less of our lives remains captive to those things that are sinful. We literally strangle sin out of our lives by saturating it with Christ. There will be a guaranteed benefit from all of this heavenly thinking. And it will be increased victory over sin. So if we are genuinely saturating our lives and seeking the things above, what should we expect? Verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3 suggests a decisive change. It says, Therefore, I believe many of you have been told that while you're reading Scripture and you see the term therefore, you always look to see what it is there for. You look at the context previous to that because that is what the writer is pointing to. Therefore indicates the writer is introducing a consequence in the subsequent verses. So he is saying, therefore, I would say Paul's writing this, therefore, since you are diligently seeking the things above and not earthly things, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The tense of the verb consider here is a very strong word in the Greek language. It indicates a decisive action. You decide in your heart and in your mind that it is so. Physicians during biblical times would use this term, this phraseology, to describe a limb that had atrophied and died. 
A Christian has the ability to choose to serve God and reckon their sinful members dead. The unbeliever can't experience that. They feed on lusts and they're a slave to them. Their thoughts and their deeds are primarily self-motivated. They don't invest their time and their thoughts on serving God because we learned already in chapter 1 that they're living in the domain of darkness. You might say, well, I don't know if that's true. I know a whole lot of unbelievers that do some good things. Good, at least, is the way the world looks at it. But what is their motive? God weighs the heart. When an unbeliever does something good, is it to glorify Jesus Christ? Or is it to glorify themselves and draw attention to themselves? If you are a Christian, you have a choice of whether you are going to indulge yourself in the two subsequent lists of sins. That's why Paul is commanding us to not do them. Some Christians might say, Oh no, that's not possible for a born-again Christian to commit these sins. Well, yes it is. That's why Paul is commanding us to abstain. We have a choice. The argument is sometimes made these are commands to non-Christians. That's completely unacceptable. It is not possible for a non-Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit living in their lives to abstain from these type of behaviors. They must first be born again. Those without the Holy Spirit have the in have no inherent ability to conquer sins. But we do. So where do we start? In verse 5, Paul says, Consider yourself dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. There's an obvious progression of these sins evident in the original language. They progress backwards from the sinful act itself to the root of the problem. Immorality is the word porneia. That's what we get our English term pornography from. But porneia here doesn't imply just dirty pictures or a movie. It describes the improper physical act of any form of sexual immorality. Some Bible versions translate it fornication, others sexual immorality. It refers to sex of any kind outside of biblical marriage. Pornea is then followed by impurity. Impurity is a bit broader term. It can be used to denote a physical act, but leans more towards the impure thought life. Also can pertain to vile words. Next, Paul lists pathos or passion. This Greek word was generally used in biblical times to describe feelings and emotions but never physical behavior. And finally, evil desires indicates a natural impulse that drives a person towards a passion. Desire is by itself a neutral term. It can be used to label any type of human desire, even that which is a desire to eat because you're hungry. It's a natural desire. But in this context, it is not neutral. It's definitely negative. It is an evil desire. 
If I may take the liberty to offer my own paraphrase of this passage, Paul says this, Your sexual immorality is a result of your impure thoughts and risky behaviors, driven by feelings and emotions that are cultivated out of your unrestrained sexual craving to satisfy your body's natural sexual impulses. The Apostle James put it this way in chapter 1 of his epistle. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The Apostle James then adds, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. What is the source of all this unrighteousness? The progression of these terms ultimately reveals it. The reason is stated clearly in verse 5. You're greedy. The problem is you. You want to use other people's bodies to fulfill your lustful desires. You aren't concerned about the other person's innocence or health or their family. All you can care about is whether you fill your natural sinful lust. You're worshiping yourself by sacrificing your time, your body, and your mind to your lusts. You've made your desires your God. That's why Paul equates this to idolatry. You're not seeking the things above, which he urged you just a few verses previous. Instead, you permit yourself to be consumed by pursuing your own self-gratification. You're breaking God's first commandment of idolatry. You're guilty. We rightly, as Christians, ought to be extremely grateful that Jesus stood in the gap and took the punishment for these sexual sins which each of us has committed. Did not Jesus say that if you've looked upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart? Verse 6 tells us why we need to be thankful to Jesus Christ for standing in the gap. Paul writes, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God will visit people who've committed these acts. That's a horrifying prospect. Wrath is reserved for those who refuse to accept God's free gift of grace. John 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In addition, Romans chapter 5 informs Christians, quote, For while we, will st- while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Then Paul adds this, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him.
Our text says that the wrath of God will come upon these sons of disobedience. It doesn't say the sons of God who've been disobedient. These are sons of disobedience. Wrath comes on the children of Satan. Jesus said in John chapter 8, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Then he answers, It is because you cannot hear my word, Jesus says. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So in this passage, Paul is briefly revealing the horrific end to those who reject Christ. He's contrasting our future with their future. And he suggests that our appreciation of Jesus Christ ought to cause us to live differently. So whose child are you? What does your life look like? We all know that in families that it's very typical for a daughter or a son to look and act like their mom or their dad. It's pretty clear. Well, I was at Delta Airlines working as a mechanic. There was a period where I was assigned to a tool crib. I was assigned to hand out tools. It was during a time of slimming back, and I survived a layoff, but they reassigned me, and they said, here, do this, hand out these tools to those who need them. So I did what they said. A man came up to me. I don't know if he's a Christian. It was quite a, quite a time before I became a believer. And he talked, we talked about some type of spiritual things. I didn't get it. And he said, are you a Christian? I did not hesitate. I said, no. He goes, how do you know? He said, because my life doesn't look anything like Jesus. Well, you might say, well, I'm, I'm not a fornicator. I don't lust after sex. I'm not really as bad as a whole lot of other people that I know. The passage continues. In verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Do you look like any of these? If you are a child of God through Jesus Christ... It's time to put them all aside, Paul says. Rid yourself of them. Put them aside. It's a phrase that was used to describe stripping off dirty clothing. You don't go back the next morning and put on soiled laundry. When you're using diapers for children that are fabric and you clean them, you don't put them back on until you have stripped off the dirty clothes and you have cleansed. Anger and wrath are sins of temperament. Are you an angry person? Do you constantly blame others for your life situation? You might lament, I don't know how to stop. You need to begin seeking spiritual things. I don't think it's entirely a coincidence here in this passage concerning anger that it is also, like sexual immorality, very often a result of worshiping self. 
The angry individual has put themselves on a pedestal. We get frustrated because our life situation isn't what we had hoped. We haven't achieved as much status as we expected or that we feel we deserve. We might not have as much money as our friends or our siblings. And it angers us. Usually when humans vent frustration in anger, they end up directing it towards others. Even in churches today, we increasingly find a generation of people who want everything to revolve around them. It's being taught by parents today. Children are told they can be anything they want to be. Then parents coddle them and tell them how pretty they are, how great they are, and how the world owes them. Then they put them on a pedestal. They say, Honey, guess what? We got 75 likes of your picture on Facebook today. Everyone's looking at you. Then eventually the children leave home. Reality smacks them right on the end of the nose. And it creates an angry, disappointed, frustrated young adult. We're beginning to have a whole generation of individuals who are frustrated and angry because life didn't turn out the way that they wanted it. If you are struggling with anger, go back and begin to saturate yourself with the Word of God, with heavenly things, with heavenly ideas, with habits. Be in God's Word, be in prayer. Think of others first. Go listen to our sermon from last week that gave some pointers on that. It's online. The next term is malice. This is a disposition of wanting to inflict harm on others in an effort to destroy them. You want to injure their reputation. You discredit them through words. You make things up. You even exaggerate facts, possibly. You spread unfounded rumors about them. You even assign motives to their actions. That's very serious. Because... If you've done that, you've just usurped the authority of God. He's the only one who knows people's motives, why they do what they do. Malice is a characteristic of someone who wants to punish another without concern of their personal well-being. You may even resort to the next word, slander, to help accomplish this goal. Slander here is the same Greek term as blasphemy, except in the context of this passage, it is applying to sins of words against a human, a fellow man. That's why a lot of the modern translations will translate it slander instead of blasphemy. The passage caps it all off by a general all-encompassing term, abuse of speech. Some say filthy language. Anyone guilty of any of these? Malice and slander. How do you avoid this in today's world? Especially the advent of modern communications. When you click like on Facebook or share that false or photoshopped image of that politician that you despise, you've just acted in malice. Your intent was to purposefully injure that person, but you didn't stick to the facts. When committing malice... You didn't find it prudent to build a rational argument out of intelligence and forward that argument. 
it's a lot easier to just smear somebody than to stick to the facts. I think there are enough problems in the world today with politicians or other people where we can stay right on topic and expose them through God's Word on what is right and wrong without having to make up something or Photoshop an image to mock somebody. Friends, I'd say the reckless behavior found on modern social media is wicked. We think that because someone else shared a photo or a news article that is doctored or laced with lies, we can simply share it too. No, you and I cannot. If you cannot verify a story or photo is originating from a legitimate source, leave it alone. You cannot share items like this and bring honor to the name of Jesus Christ. How about slander combined with what verse 8 calls abusive speech from your mouth? That means intent through words. Are you insulting people? Are you belittling others while elevating yourself and your priorities in order to forward your politicking? In addition, abusive speech is not confined to words spoken verbally. The term for mouth in this text is stomatos, and it's the same term that Jesus uses in Matthew 4.4 when he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The words that proceed out of the mouth of God are not heard verbally today. At least not at this church. God's words have been transferred from prophets and apostles and written down as men were guided by the Holy Ghost. So that which is written down is reminiscent of that, of what originates from God's mouth. When you read Scripture, you are hearing directly from God's mouth. Anything you place in written form, whether texts or emails or Facebook posts or what have you, it's attributed to you as if you spoke it out of your mouth. You're responsible if it's true or false or slanderous or ungodly. Once you click the send, forward, or share button, you've taken full responsibility for it. People today are deceived into thinking they're not responsible for their electronic communications. It wasn't me. I just forwarded it. It was someone else. It just came into my inbox. No, it's you. One of the most ridiculous things I find when people send email today or any other form of message or note or anything they passed along, and I've seen this over many years of ministry now, they say, that was private. You were never supposed to have seen that. No, it isn't private. God sees it. It doesn't matter whether it's sharing between you and a buddy or sharing with your grandma Gertrude. Scripture says, don't do it. It doesn't even need to be slanderous. Verse 9 says, all it needs to be in order to be classified as a lie is inaccurate. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Lying is falsehood and it violates God's ninth commandment. It is supposed to be a characteristic of the old self before coming to Christ. 
All the above sins are completely inconsistent with someone who is seeking the things above. A Christian cannot be immersing themselves into these behaviors and at the same time be spiritually minded. Before coming to Christ, verse 7 tells us concerning these sinful behaviors, we used to walk in them and live in them. They were our habitual deeds. We defaulted to them and we dwelled in them. But praise God, we now have the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us. So we have the power and the ability to follow God instead of Satan. And he wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our relationships. He wants to destroy Christ's church. You and I need to decide who we're going to follow. All these sins against one another result in strife and division, and they sow the seeds of discontent. How do we avoid them in a practical sense? Don't participate. Don't respond. If someone is forwarding you information where you cannot verify the source, leave it alone. Modern technology makes it nearly impossible now to verify the source of any statement or photo. Things are doctored. doctored. Videos now, you, you really can't even tell if they're original. They're so craftily done. Technology has been amazing. can't believe how many things circle Facebook over and over and over again. The same videos, the same photos that have been doctored. It's just obvious. If someone sends you a message that slanders, discredits, or lies, don't listen. Turn the voice off. If it occurs on Facebook, you have my personal permission to defriend them. I know that isn't very popular to do, is it? It's kind of rude to defriend someone on Facebook. Yet, some of the stuff that we see, the sexual content and other things, that's kind of rude too, isn't it? Just be wise. Just be wise. The Apostle Paul gives us advice to do of what to do concerning these behaviors. Again, of the children of Satan that he mentions in Ephesians chapter 5. He writes this, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now the Apostle Paul provides remedies. Therefore do not be partakers with them, For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, But all things become visible when they are exposed to the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Pretty simple. Don't partake. Don't participate. Expose if necessary. 
Avoid the trash talk. Refuse the rumors. Wherever it happens. People who are behaving within reason have no fear when the light of Christ returns. Their deeds will be exposed. Those who do not live in the light will suffer the wrath. We need to put off the old self and put on the new. Church is a place where people of all backgrounds come together and love and worship God. Verse 9 instructs us, Put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In a renewal where there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Are you bearing the image of your Father in heaven who created you? What image are you reflecting? Take an honest look at yourself. I need to take an honest look at myself. Who's your daddy? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is God your Father? Those of us who accept Christ come together each week to worship God's Son because He took the punishment for us on the cross. We're from every possible background under the sun. Take a look around. We're a bunch of misfits. But we have one Lord who draws us all together. Verse 10 says Christians originate from different nationalities. Greek and Jew. This text also tells us that we are from different religious traditions. Circumcised or uncircumcised. That means religiously we're from all over the map. Some have previously been maybe culturally Catholic. Maybe we're Methodist or Spiritist or Atheist. We've even got a man who is a Jew who comes and worships with us now. Praise Jesus. Verse 10 says that some of us have been barbarians. Not going to mention any names. Others were Scythians. They were the baddest of the bad. Scythians were equestrian warriors who used to ride on horseback and shoot arrows and drink the blood of their enemies. Some of them even came into the church to worship Jesus Christ. The text says that we have slaves and we have freemen. That means the church consists of those originating from the lowest social strata all the way to the top. Rich and poor makes no difference. When we come together, Christ is all and he's in all. We're all one. From time to time I've had an individual tell me, I don't need Jesus. You know, I, I did a whole lot of bad things. Uh, I've cleaned my life up. Besides that, even though a lot of these bad things happened, it was a very long time ago. You know, I'm a new person now. Don't need Jesus. I've got my life on track. If you're saying that to yourself, you still have a problem. You still need Jesus. The problem is, time doesn't erase sin. Time does not offer forgiveness of sins that you did 30 years ago 
three years ago or three days ago. You need to come to Jesus Christ. God himself being timeless, he exists outside of time, remembers those sins. Even those really awful ones that you did when you were a little teenager. You need to deal with them now. You need to think about who Jesus is and why he died and believe that he rose again all in accordance with the scriptures. Going to take a brief moment. I'd like you to consider that. I'd like you to decide today where you're going to stand, who's going to be your daddy. I know many of you here, probably most, are born-again Christians. Thankful for that, but there might be someone here today who has never said, I'm changing teams. So I'd like to take just one moment where everybody would bow their head. Just keep to yourself. This is a private moment now. You can do all kinds of public moments later. Yes, I know anyone who comes to faith will profess that faith publicly. But for right now, so that you just bow your head, take a moment, and think, do you need to make that choice today? Do you need to have Jesus Christ in your life? Do you want your past erased, not by time, but by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he rose from the dead and that he's God's son, that he loves you? I assure you he loves you. I assure you that he wants you in complete fellowship with him. If you made that decision, would you privately just raise your hand quickly and set it back down? Praise God. Praise God. Would you now pray with me? Lord God, we're so thankful for your, your holy, marvelous word that the Lord can encourage us so much. It can can help us to understand you, dear Jesus. And uh, Lord, even at the right time, it can prick us, can prick our conscience and remind each of us how we've fallen, how we've done things that aren't so good, Lord. Thank you for your word. It shines as a light. It helps us to know who we are and who you are, Lord God. We praise the holy name of Jesus for sending uh, for coming to save us, Lord. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for those today who raised their hand. Lord, I pray that each one of them, if they've made that decision now, that uh, they will profess it publicly, Lord. We pray that you seal them with your Holy Spirit right now. You call them one of your own. Lord, they live the rest of their life to honor you. Lord, help us all to do that. Help each one of us here. It's a struggle every day, Lord, even for Christians, to put off that old self and put on the new. Lord, I also want those who raise their hand to know that they can come to church leadership for help, for guidance. They can come to Pastor Weiler and myself, Lord, and and let them not be shy or timid. Let them know we just want to help as we all struggle through this life. We struggle to honor you. Lord, thank you for this wonderful day, this uh, ability to come here and worship the Holy One of God. It's in Jesus' holy and exalted name that we pray. Amen.